Good morning, my beloved brothers and sisters. How are you today? Good. If you have your Bible open to the Gospel of Luke with me this morning, be in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Well, a um, few of y'all came out to the softball game the other night. How many of y'all came to the softball game the other night? few of you, yeah. We got beat bad. So anyway, but uh, it's okay. Right, right. You know, we're going we're gonna to be like the phoenix and rise up from the ashes. Amen? Amen. So just uh, be in prayer for us. Come support us at the games. Uh, I got suckered into pitching, so I might not have any teeth before the softball season's over. But, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll make me preach better. You know, you never know. So how's everybody this morning? Everybody doing well? Give me an amen. 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 Ready for a little cooler weather this week? Praise God. Yes, yes, yes. I was so glad to see some rain move in the other day. Um, give you a, just a little bit more thorough introduction today coming into the passage. Uh, today we're going to look at a healing, the first healing that has happened in a while in the Gospel of Luke. So we need to set it up so you can see the what most theologians and scholars for hundreds of years have seen uh, going on here. I believe it's uh, fascinating what Jesus is doing. Uh, remember the big shift in Luke happened, you need to just make a note of this, in chapter nine, verse 51, there's like a, everyone sees a shift, and that verse is when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. So from that point forward, Jesus has his sights on Jerusalem and his coming crucifixion. We know at the end of chapter 10, he is in Bethany with Martha and Mary, a city not too far from Jerusalem, but he does not seem to go from Bethany into Jerusalem just yet. He seems to possibly go back north. Uh, and it's hard to tell exactly where he goes, but we think that he goes to an area known as Perea, which is kind of between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee in this area right here, uh, and to various cities. And Jesus is doing what his father is leading him to do, and that is healing and preaching the word of God. He has sent his disciples out for the first, uh, the first mission. Now they've come back and they're with him. And so Jesus is awaiting the prompting from his father to make the final trip to Jerusalem for his Passover week where he would be crucified. So as we transition into chapter 13, Christ gives three warnings in the form of parables, okay? Three warnings. If you remember in 12, he, just this long chapter 12 that we were in for a very long time where the Pharisees invites him over for this dinner and he talks about the beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and we have all these teachings coming into chapter 13, but there's three specific warnings that he gives before this healing event happens in the synagogue, okay? He says to settle with your accuser. Just gonna review these for just a second. Settle with your accuser. He says to make an effort to settle with your accuser on the way to the magistrate, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and puts you in prison. In other words, to, to give you a synopsis, you owe a debt, you cannot pay, and only Jesus can provide a way to settle outside of court so you're not thrown in jail. So he says, settle with your accuser before time. 
In other words, get your life right with me today. Okay, that's the first one he gives you. The second one, you remember this one, the repent or perish, where the crowd tells Jesus about some Galileans that had been executed by Pilate's men and that execution led to their blood being mingled with their sacrifices. And the thought was, well, if that happened to them, surely they were much horrible sinners than others because of the way this happened, the way God allowed this. And Jesus says, no, and if you don't repent, you too shall perish. And then he talks about the 18 people that were killed when the tower fell in Salome. And he says, you know, were they worse offenders? And he says, no, but unless you repent, you will also perish. You see where he's going with this? He's calling, he's calling those that are listening to come to repentance and faith in him through these different parables. And then finally, in the parable of the fig tree, he says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I find none. So what do we do with the tree? We cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So we know in this third example before the healing, we see the fig tree was symbolic of Israel and Jerusalem in the Old Testament. So the tree is symbolic of people, the people Israel, which means it can be applied to us as Gentiles because we are grafted in to the covenant people through faith in Christ. And the primary purpose of the fig tree or any other fruit tree for that matter is to what? Produce fruit, which it was not doing. So then we see that judgment on the tree is planned by the owner of the tree. He says, for three years now I've come and there's no fruit, so cut this tree down. But then mercy, mercy intervenes for one final chance at life. As the vine dresser pleads, leave it alone for one more year. Let me dig into the soil. Let me, let me turn it over and fertilize it. Then if it doesn't bear fruit, cut it down. So Jesus has given all this deep, rich, wonderful theology, which was provoked by the controversy with the Pharisees at the dinner at the end of chapter 11, that now culminates in these three final warnings, which lead him back into healing ministry. I believe that scholarship is correct. I follow them in this. I believe that this healing in this synagogue we will study about today is a test. It's a test. And what is it a test to determine? Have they what? Have they listened? Have they listened? The Son of God is about to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath, Lord of the Sabbath. He is about to go there and he is about to heal a woman and he is about to see if they have listened. Are they ready to settle with their accuser? Are they ready to do that? Are they, are they ready to repent or perish? Are they a barren fig tree or one that produces fruit? Will they listen and believe? Will they become a fruitful fig tree? So let us read together in Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had, who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 
When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. That's a great place for an amen, right? But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. That make you want to slap him, amen? Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from, his bond, from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things. All his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. How many times, count how many times you, hear, you see Sabbath in that passage. I counted five. Verse 10, verse 14, there's two in verse 14, one in verse 15, and one in verse 16. So what do you think this passage is centralized around? Sabbath. That's how you study and learn the word of God. You look for key words. It is clear. So get this, three warnings. Settle with your accuser, repent or perish. Are you a barren fig tree? Now he comes to the synagogue on a Sabbath and heals a woman that has a disabling spirit that is satanic. He is showing his divinity. He is teaching and showing his divinity is what he is doing. Genesis chapter two, verses one through three says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now in Luke chapter six, Jesus had already claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath in Luke chapter six. When the Pharisees condemned the disciples for gleaning in the fields, they were gleaning in the fields on the Sabbath. They came to him and criticized him and his disciples. Jesus appealed to David from 1 Samuel chapter 21, when he was on the run from Saul and they had no bread, so they gave him actually the bread of presents from the Holy of Holies. And he says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So here's Jesus healing in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Here in the synagogue, we see a woman in physical satanic bondage. Verse 10 says, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and behold, there was a woman who had a who'd had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now we don't know how much time passed between the last passage and this one, but it, it certainly seems that it was not very long. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath and let me just say this, there is not a more provocative place provocative place for Jesus to be with the current controversy swirling around him than the, synagogue, than the synagogue, but on the Sabbath, where else would the Son of God be? The synagogue. He was being a faithful Jew. He faithfully attended the synagogue. And I found it very interesting. Guess what we find out that the synagogue was full of in just a few verses? Begins with an H. 
Hypocrites. Imagine that. The synagogue was full of hypocrites, but yet who went there and worshiped? Jesus. What's the message to us today? Don't use that as an excuse, amen, because Jesus sure didn't. Give me a witness. He went, and it was full of hypocrites. And he went and preached to them anyway. So he goes, and Jesus, we also see from this that Jesus had no fear of the Jewish leadership. Interesting place for him to be considering the hatred that was building with the Jewish leadership toward him. He had no fear of the Pharisees. And this synagogue would have been packed out with Jewish leadership. Another interesting fact, according to Luke, this will be the last time, the last time he visits a synagogue on the Sabbath. How interesting is that? Give the fig tree one more what? Then cut it down. This is the last time he goes to the synagogue. And when he's at the synagogue, what does he do? He heals a woman that is disabled with a satanic spirit. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So as Jesus is teaching, he sees a, he notices a very special person. He sees a woman that is very noticeable because her posture is unlike anyone else's in the synagogue. She was bent over completely and could not straighten herself. Something about like this. So she comes into the synagogue like this, probably trying to look up, straining her eyes so that she can see. A very, very difficult, difficult situation to be in, this woman. She is only mentioned in Luke. Most research produces the idea that she likely had what is called ankylosing spondylitis. I guarantee you I did not say that right. Ankylosing spondylitis. It is a form of arthritis, a genetic condition linked to the HLA-B27 gene, and only 2% of people develop the condition that have this gene. Men are more likely to have it, but it does happen to women. Research says it begins in the late teens and early 20s. It begins with low back pain and stiffness and worsens with inactivity. Now get that, worsens with inactivity. Pain is worse at night while sleeping. So the pain constantly does what to them during the night? Wakes them up. So not only are they crippled, but they're not rested because the pain makes them wake up all night long. Other symptoms are weight loss and fatigue, chest pain, Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, heart problems, eye problems, breathing problems, GI disease, doesn't sound like one of the most pleasant things to experience, does it? It can progress to the point that the vertebrae in the spine develop what are called spurs on the front side that grow so large that they actually grow and fuse together, rendering the person unable to stand up because the spine is fused together in a curved fashion. This was a very painful and life-altering condition that also made those that suffered from it complete social outcasts. So this was a physiological problem that was rooted, as Luke tells us, in the cosmological disorder. 
This was a spiritually manifest manifestation of a satanic attack on this woman for 18 years. The woman had a disabling spirit for 18 years. That's a long time, a long time. Possession is not mentioned, nor do I think implied, but we all understand that the reason disease and death exist in the world is due to the fallenness of humanity and the world. Don't ever forget that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, provoked the judgment of God on humanity, and now the prince of the power of the air rules underneath God's sovereignty. One of the most difficult realities to understand about this time and this place, very difficult. And you can read and study the problem of evil until the day you depart this earth and you are never going to completely understand it and it can drive you absolutely crazy if you let it, it can. So we have this woman in physical satanic bondage. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She glorified God. So Christ frees the woman from satanic oppression. Notice how he does it. Not a tremendous amount of commentary here, fairly self-explanatory. Jesus is at the front of the synagogue and he calls her publicly calls her publicly to the front of the synagogue. Why would that be? So that everyone can see. Everyone can see her, everyone can see him, so that they can see clearly and plainly what Jesus is about to do. He laid his hands on her, laid his hands on her. That's something that we do in the church of Jesus Christ a good bit, especially when we ordain men to service or when we pray to have someone healed, of which I have done dozens and dozens of times as long as I've been in ministry, ever since I've been a Christian. I have anointed people with oil. I've prayed over them to be healed. I have prayed for people to be healed. I've traveled long distances with other people to meet together and to see people healed. This is not an uncommon thing. It is very common. Very, very rarely does it ever happen, and I can't explain that. But I can tell you in faith, it has been done multiple times with my own eyes over people that were sick, crippled, diseased, all different types of things. So he laid his hands on her and the laying on of hands in the Old Testament symbolized, signified one of three things. Number one, dedication of sacrifices to God. That's clear. Number two, installation of the Levites to the priesthood or blessing to simply bless someone. The only instance of laying hands on in the New Testament relates to the healing of Naaman the Syrian's desire for the healing touch of Elisha. Jesus, as we know from the very beginning, connects himself in, as a type of Elisha from the very beginning of Luke. So now he follows the precedent of Elisha in laying of the hands, which continues into the New Testament for making those of service and anointing. So Jesus transfers the sacred power to this disabled woman, and immediately the scripture says she was made straight and she glorified God. Notice there was no mention of what? Faith. 
No mention of faith. If she had it, it's not mentioned. No mention of that at all. And it fulfills Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus said in the synagogue in Nazareth, when he went and preached and read the scrolls, when he finished, he said these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed as this woman was oppressed by a satanic spirit to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Christ frees the woman from satanic oppression. He calls her to the front of the synagogue. He lays his hands on her and she is freed and healed and stands up for the first time in how long? 18 years. No more sickness, no more illness, no more pain, at least not in the immediate future. Verse 14, this is what makes you want to throw up. But the ruler of the synagogue came down screaming and shouting and praising God because she was healed. Is that what it says? I wish that's what it said, amen? I wish that's what it said. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. Well, we're so sorry that this woman's ailment doesn't fit your calendar, Rabbi. Amen? I mean, so tradition, here, here's the point we, we gather from this. And we're as guilty as badness as the Jews were back in this time. Tradition can cause fear that blinds us from ministry opportunities. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Traditions can cause fear that blinds us from ministry opportunities. Why? Because we've never done it that way before. How many of y'all ever heard that? Every Baptist on earth says, I have. Because we use that to keep us from doing anything that you know, might have God involved in it. So after this incredible work of God, in healing this poor woman and freeing her from the enslavement of her disability for 18 years. What do we hear from the Jewish leadership? Praises and celebration, excitement and thankfulness to Jesus. Sadly and tragically, no. This ruler of the synagogue who had sanctioned Jesus to speak interrupts this incredible moment and throws a bucket of cold water on the whole room. I mean, a bucket of cold water on the whole room. Probably because he feared the other Jewish leaders. Probably because there was an audience of other Jewish leaders in the synagogue, and when they saw this happen, they all looked at him like, are you gonna do something about this? And so he gets up and he confronts the whole situation. And the Bible says he was indignant. He was annoyed at what he had seen happen. He apparently felt as though Jesus had violated his trust as he healed on the Sabbath. But it is interesting he doesn't address Jesus directly. Who does he address? All the people there. So it's like he turns and stands up and says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. 
I mean, after all, he's probably thinking, this situation with her is hardly life-threatening. I mean, it's just been going on for 18 years. What does one more day make a difference? Well, guess who's not suffering from the disabling problem? The ruler of the synagogue, amen? It's funny how that always happens. So where was he coming from? Where was this ruler from the synagogue coming from? He was coming from Deuteronomy chapter five. And I'm just gonna read a few verses so you'll understand because it helps to understand. To understand this whole scene, you have to understand this. Deuteronomy five, beginning in verse 12 says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now listen carefully, because Jesus, this is what Jesus uses to turn it back on him. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And we'll stop there. So the ruler in the synagogue saw the healing the woman in the synagogue as work. He saw it as work. All Jesus did was speak words and touch her and the divine power of God did the rest. So the ruler's rebuke seems to be based on an extreme misinterpretation of the law driven most likely by jealousy and rivalry because Jesus did something for her that the rabbinic community could not do for how long? 18 years. <laughs> Praise God, out of the mouth of babes, amen? Thank you for listening. So instead of being thankful and humble, he desperately appeals to the very law that God had written for their own good and applies it in a way that brings negativity to the entire moment. Question, have you ever done that? Have I ever done that? And what is the answer to that question? Absolutely we have. Missing the entire God moment the entire movement of the Holy Spirit because of you being angry over some tradition being broke. I am as guilty as anybody on that, as guilty as anybody. The tradition can cause fear that blinds us from ministry. And that's what happened to this ruler in the synagogue. Fear over the repercussions from his peers. Fear over the repercussions of who he, what he believed God would honor. He missed the incredible moment of this woman being freed from a disability of 18 years. Are y'all ready for the rebuke? I always love Jesus' answer, amen? It's my favorite part of this passage. Then the Lord answered him, you what? Say it louder, exclamation point. You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? 
As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So Christ rebukes the people for their hypocrisy. He rebukes them. He, the, the, the Jewish ruler stands up, addresses all the people, and then Jesus comes right back at him and rebukes them. And he uses the own law, their, the, their own law against them. Now, you hypocrites, why does he say that? Well, I'm gonna give you some reasons. You gotta know the Mishnah a little bit. The Mishnah, the Jewish interpretation of the law, the oral tradition that has been handed down for, for, for generations within the Jewish community. The, the Mishnah allows cattle, allows cattle to be led on the Sabbath as long as they do not carry a load. The Mishnah allows cattle to drink without violating the Sabbath. And the Mishnah allows cattle to travel up to 2,000 cubits for pasturing, eating, food. So you understand what that means? So the cattle is unyoked, unyoked, set free, and allowed to pasture and eat for 2,000 cubits. So this clearly shows that the animal has more freedom than a human on the Sabbath. The leaders are condemned by their own practice. They show compassion to animals, but not to who? People. How can an animal be treated with more concern on the sacred day than a person? Such an attitude is the reversal of the created order. So Jesus opens their eyes to a deeper principle that their traditions had blinded them from seeing. The law that the ruler had just quoted stated that not only were humans to rest on the Sabbath, but animals were too. That meant that all their beasts were to be unbound and allowed freedom to eat and drink and relax on the Sabbath. Well, Christ takes that principle and turns it around on the ruler. And he basically says, well, if we unbind animals from their yokes and allow them to eat and drink on the Sabbath, then we should certainly unbind human beings from their infirmities on the Sabbath. This woman has been bound by Satan for 18 years. Should she not be unbound on the Sabbath so that she may rest? That's deep, y'all. That's deep. What better time, what better place than with the son of, son of God on the Sabbath in the synagogue than to heal a woman that had been bound by Satan for 18 years? That's what Jesus is saying. The healing of the crippled woman on the Sabbath is not a violation of Sabbath, as the ruler implies, but wholly in character with the union of Jesus with the Father and his spirit-anointed mission to liberate the oppressed. If an animal, how much more a daughter of Abraham? If one whom you've bound for a few hours, how much more one whom Satan who's been bound for 18 years? If you can loose the bonds of an animal on the Sabbath as well as the other six days of the week, how much more is it necessary for God to loose this woman's bond on the Sabbath? How much more? Your tradition your oral interpretation of the holy law is wrong, in error. Some could say heretical because it has turned the holy law against the very woman that needs to be healed to fulfill the entire purpose of Sabbath to begin with, which was what? 
rest. She's not resting. She's disabled. She's in pain 24-7. She can't even sleep because she's in pain, yet she builds up the courage to come to the synagogue. I heal her, and now you're going to rebuke the entire situation in front of everyone? It's a tragedy. I mean, what's more important, animals or people? Well, that's a good question for us in America, is it not? You know, I read some data not too long ago. Get this that money spent on pets in this country outpaces money spent on children, if you can believe that. Yeah, look it up. What to expect when no one's expecting. Look up the book and read it. And that book's 10 years old. I wonder how bad it is today. It's probably, I guarantee it hasn't gotten better. It's probably gotten worse. We, many times, We care more about animals' needs and animals' comforts than we do about human beings' needs and human beings' comforts. A woman in physical satanic bondage, Christ frees the woman from satanic oppression. Tradition can cause fear that binds us from ministry and Christ rebukes the people for their hypocrisy. Now, just a few closing thoughts for you today. I want to talk about healing for a moment with a couple of other things. Number one, what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this today, from this teaching? Well, I mean, Baptist and traditions, my goodness, that's probably a sermon series itself that could last six months, but I'm not not going down that road today. I'll just say, we must be careful elevating our customs and traditions to being equal to the divine. Very careful, very careful. Many of them have good intentions, but when we begin to bypass mercy and grace due to rules, wants, and personal preference, we are missing the heart of God. Missing the heart of God. Missing it. Missing it. If this, here's another one, and this is my own personal little ax to grind, I'll just give it to you. Y'all ready for it? It's real simple. If a disabled woman can get to church on Sunday, so can we, amen? Amen? And now healing. Never an end to the discussion on, on healing. Ever since I've been a believer, there is this, this continuing debate on healing, healing, healing. The question is, why do we not see more healing in our time, in this era? Why do we not see more healing? And you know what my answer is? Say it with me. I don't know. Thank you. We need to hire him, amen? I, I, I don't know. I can give you, I can give you some, some thoughts. I can give you some thoughts. Perhaps our contemporary churches are too entertainment driven, perhaps. Devoid of spiritual power, that is a possibility. Perhaps we as believers are filled with unforgiveness and anger. The sun has gone down on our anger, not for a day, not for a week, not for months, but for generations. And it has grieved the Holy Spirit throughout 
our churches? Perhaps. Perhaps we are focused too much on money and material. Maybe the power of the Holy Spirit is deeply grieved to a multitude of reasons that are concealed in the council of heaven. I don't know. But I tell you, I, in obedience to the text, I have responded to dozens of people that were sick, diseased, hurting, in pain. I have anointed with oil that I have sincerely prayed. And to my knowledge, none of them were miraculously healed. I've prayed as you have prayed for our entire land to be healed and that revival would come. Amen, have you not prayed that prayer? Multiple times. Yet you see where we are. I will tell you that I am not a cessationist. Do you know what a cessationist is? A cessationist believes that the miraculous powers and the giftings died with the apostles at the end of the book of Acts. I do not believe that. For a second, I don't believe that. I believe that God can and will, when he chooses, heal people. Amen? I believe it with all my heart. I, I can give you phone numbers of people that you can call and say, hey, Brother Shelby said in the message that he went and prayed over your wife. Did he really do that? Did he really anoint her with all prayer? And they'll say, yes, he did. Did she get healed? No. She died six months later, and she's in heaven now. That's what they'll tell you. I don't understand why. I believe in miracles. I believe they still happen today. I believe people can be healed today. However, we must remember that we are still in the last days and the curse is still active in the world and the world is still fallen and Satan is still active. So when I get wrapped up in all that wondering why, 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 I remember Lazarus was raised from the dead and then did what? Died. This beloved woman was healed of her infirmity, but yet what would eventually happen to her? She would die. In fact, not only did Lazarus die again, not only did this woman die again, but there's another one that would die in the not too distant future in these gospels, and what was his name? Jesus. He would die. And then he would come out of the grave. And then he would ascend to heaven. And the Bible tells us that when we least expect it, what's gonna happen? He's coming back. And our mission from the time he came until the time he comes back is to take this gospel the world over. To preach the eternal riches of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why we do what we do. So we must remember Jesus is resurrected from the dead and now his spirit indwells in all believers and whether God heals you physically or not, he has done the more important thing because this body on this earth is eventually going to die and the spirit that is inside will go either to heaven or to hell. And if you profess faith and believe in him, you are with him for all ages, amen? That. That is the most important thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. The internal salvation of our spirits.
that when this flesh ends, when this flesh dies, and our spirit departs from our bodies, that if we have professed belief in him and come to repentance and faith, when we have settled with our accuser, when we have repented before we perish, when we, when we do that, when we bear fruit, we're not a barren fig tree, then we come to know Jesus Christ and we are healed on the inside of our hearts. And as Paul says, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit for all eternity. No matter what happens, as one theologian years ago, I think it was D.L. Moody said, whatever happens to this bag of flesh, amen? This bag of flesh, this bag of dirt, whatever happens to this bag of dirt, it doesn't matter because what's inside goes up and then whenever he comes back, what's down there is transformed into what Jesus is like and then we're reunited with our soul and we're with him for all eternity. But I will tell you this, I will never stop praying for people to be healed. I will never stop responding to those of you who ask me to come anoint you with oil. I will never stop praying and I will never stop believing. But if it doesn't happen, I'm not gonna despair, amen? I'm not gonna despair. My faith and my trust is in the one that went to the cross, went to the tomb and came out alive, amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. And I am so thankful for the testimony of this disabled woman that came to the synagogue where Jesus was and that Jesus healed by his touch and immediately reversed 18 years of pain and suffering being completely bent over to where she can hardly walk and hardly see, hardly get dressed, hardly go to the market. Chances are she was poor, either widowed or abandoned. But you showed the world that day your love for her and the love for everyone like her, that your touch can heal, your touch can restore. Your touch can bring fruit to our lives unlike we have ever seen or known. And Lord, we pray today, if there is anyone who has not been touched by Jesus and they are here today and they sense the calling of your spirit, the conviction of their sins, I pray that they would come, be saved, Come to the altar and be saved, Lord. Repent of their sins so that they will not perish and come to know Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.